Hi, everyone. I'm Julia Stiglitz, and welcome to the GSV Accelerate podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Ashu Desai, the co-founder of Make School, which recently began offering an applied bachelor's degree in computer science through a partnership with Dominican University. In this podcast, we'll hear how Make School is founded, why Ashu decided it was important for his students to be able to offer them an undergraduate degree, and what Ashu thinks the higher education landscape will look like as we head into the future. I really enjoyed chatting with Ashu, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as well. Ashu, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thanks for having me. this uh, rainy San Francisco Wednesday. (laughs) Um, awesome. So I'd love to just dive right in um, and hear a little bit about your background and what inspired you to start Make School. Sure. Uh, so the story dates back to when I was in high school. Um, when I was 16, I was taking computer science classes and summer spent time learning how to build uh, my own iPhone apps. Um, the iPhone had just come out and was really excited about exploring this technology. I think uh, one thing that was unique about that is that the iPhone was a really tangible platform for uh, apps to be um, uh, created and shared with other people. And so I really fell in love with this idea of using computer science as a tool to get some sort of software or some sort of product in the hands of whether it's my friends or people in a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really shaped uh, that experience of, of having built this app um, when I was 16 and uh, ended up selling about 50,000 copies in the App Store and mm-hmm. um, really shaped what I was looking to get out of my education. Suddenly, things like getting a good grade on a, on a test or getting a good grade on a paper um, didn't really feel like it had nearly as much meaning mm-hmm. as building something that touches people's lives in some way, shape, or form. And uh, it was a simple product. It was a game. It was nothing, nothing too complicated. But, what was it called? Uh, it was called Helicopter. It was still just enough exposure of getting that kind of hook of, hey, I can build things that matter beyond this little bubble of school that I'm living in. Um, and so uh, that led me to uh, become really passionate about computer science. And I ended up going to UCLA for a year to study computer science um, and felt quite frustrated with my education there. Um, the main uh, reason was a lot of the education was very focused around theoretical research for computer science rather than the tangible uh, understanding of how to build software for, for uh, end users. And um, it made me think about taking time off school, which I eventually did. Uh, I met up with my co-founder, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy had a very similar experience. He had gone to high school with me. We'd taken some computer science classes. Um, and he had gone to MIT where he had felt similar challenges with the education, uh, specifically the CS education there. And so um, initially, we t- decided to take some time off school to explore working on a few different projects together. Um, and eventually led us to uh, deciding to teach other high school and college students how to build apps. Uh, feeling that this experience was incredibly re- rewarding for us. It both made us much more passionate about computer science, but also uh, gave us a leg up in our careers because we suddenly had a lot of internship and job opportunities uh, based on this product that we could show recruiters. Um, and so we decided to say, hey, let's teach all these other students who have been had some exposure to computer science, but haven't actually built anything really yet. Um, so let's provide that practical experience for them. Um, so that started as teaching a class at our old high school um, of 12 students, teaching them how to build apps. Uh, then that first summer, we had invited about uh, 30 high school students into our living room, and they were all working on building products. At the time, we had some uh, online content that we had put. Uh, the students would sit there and uh, they would go through the online content um, the first half of the program, they would clone existing apps like Angry Birds um, or Conway Save a Life. And then the second half of the program, they would build their own original project. And the way the education worked is anytime they got stuck, they would raise their hand. Jeremy and I would come and help them. So really high focus on this kind of flipped classroom, one-on-one mentorship, um, even from back then. And the goal of this summer was to get all the students to have an app on the app store built and shipped. And so... That was uh, the the iteration of education we started with, um, which was really focused on supplementing 
the liberal arts and theoretical CS education you get in college mm-hmm. with a more practical uh, lens. Um, and uh, that was what we thought we were going to be building for a while. But, I'm uh, curious, yeah. like, what was your parents' reaction when you told them you weren't going to go back to UCLA, that you were going to teach other, teach high school students uh, to coach. Yeah, I think they uh, there were mixed uh, mixed emotions there. They had seen me having some success in high school with the app that I had built, and so um, that uh, I guess I had some confidence that I'd be able to do something, or I would eventually do something in this field in this domain. They always saw me as a student who didn't totally fit in the traditional education system, so I think they I wouldn't say they were surprised um, by it, um, and ultimately they were supportive, um, but uh, definitely. Uh, continued to get questions from my mom uh, for quite a while after I left school um, about when I'm going to go back and whether I'm going to get my degree. For so many families and communities, and especially for, for my mom, it, it really was an insurance policy for uh, guaranteeing that I would be able to work at a great company and have a great job um, if I had that degree. And me choosing not to have that um, definitely created some stress and anxiety for her um, in terms of wondering what, what would happen with her son's career um, rather than having a bit more certainty there. Um, but you pursued it anyway. Yes. <laughs> and um, so when did it shift from being this sort of after-school um, activity with, with high school students to being really an alternative to college? The, the first summer program we ran was in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, we continued to run summer programs uh, for the next few years and, and scaled those up to a few hundred students in a few different cities. Um, it was the summer of 2014 we started to think about uh, what else do we want to, to build and do we... And there are kind of a few directions we could have gone. We could say, let's continue to build summer programs in more subjects, more disciplines. Let's launch them in more cities. Um, or we could say, let's think about uh, building a longer and, and deeper educational experience. Um, and the main thing that made us think about building a deeper educational experience is we had so many of our students telling us uh, from our summer program that they felt disengaged with their higher education. They felt that they learned more in a few months at make school than they did in, in college. Um, and they felt that make school was the first time they both felt this community um, that was really inspired and excited to be building and working on the same types of problems that they, they were excited about. Um, and it was the first time they felt deeply engaged with education, that they were uh, willingly, despite not having homework, willingly spending their evenings uh, continuing to build um, what, what, what they wanted. And um, I think for us, it was always about how do you make education empowering? Um, and what empowering education means to us is a lot of its agency. Um, and it's very similar to kind of what are the things that drive people in the workforce. There's a lot of great research on like what drives white collar employees. It's like uh, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And if you provide those same things in an educational context, then you also get students who are willing to, to kind of do, do anything to, to learn, um, which is really exciting. And so um, it was hearing their stories um, made us realize that our experience with college was not unique. We were not the weird ones that didn't fit in the system. Um, but it turns out the way the system is currently designed, there's a huge contingent of people who kind of have this maker mindset and who are builders at, at the core, um, who, who are just kind of getting by with school rather than really falling in love with it. And so um, that was what, what made us think about, okay, what, what, what could we build that would be big, bigger? Um, or, or more impactful for these students than, than a, a two-month program. So I think it's really limited how much you can learn in two months. Um, and so we started out by piloting what we called a gap year, um, which was taking students who had either just come out of high school and were taking a break between college, or they were in college and they would take a year off to go learn 
a bunch of cool industry relevant things, maybe intern at, at a tech company. And, and so initially we pitched that, that gap year program to students from our summer program, ended up getting about 11 students in that first gap year class, um, where they spent six months learning, six months interning. And from there, we got to see that the students were end up, ended up getting jobs at companies like Snapchat, Pandora, Edmodo, a lot of cool uh, tech companies, um, despite having even just a limited amount of education. There was, were some students who were taking this, a break between, uh, between college. There was one student, Masa, who, uh, he, um, ended up spending uh, or just out of high school did make school he deferred MIT for a year um, and he ended up getting a job that gave him a signing bonus uh, which was enough to pay off his parents debt it was just an amazing experience to have a student who, who came from a low income background um, and was able to have so much tangible benefit for, for his life and his family's life um, even from there and, and Masai did end up going back to MIT um, and I think he's just, just about to finish up school there um, but it was, it was really it, it really showed us that actually there might be something um, that is different than the current system that could uh, get students on a path that will provide them a really, really sustainable livelihood. And, and then at some point, you decided that actually that you wanted to have, um, to give students a, an undergraduate degree, that mm-hmm. you give them a BA. Like, what was it that, that made you come go to that conclusion? Um, we definitely did not set out thinking that would happen. Uh, we did start to think about, uh, in, in 2014, start to think about, okay, what would it look like if we were to rebuild college from the ground up? Um, and this was a few things. One, seeing the results from our program, seeing our students' excitement about it, um, but also the Ivory Tower documentary had just come out and kind of understanding the state of the student debt crisis, which had just hit a, a trillion dollars. And uh, so there were so many components around that that made us feel like there were certain systemic challenges with the uh, with the higher education system. And so we, we wanted to build a, a new model of college, something that, that looked different, felt different, um, and had different sets of incentive structures. Um, and initially, we thought that uh, the degree wouldn't be important. For we, we felt that for two reasons. We thought that public perception of the degree, because of these systemic issues and because of reducing ROI of college, um, would, would fall. And similarly, we thought that employer perception of de- degree would become less and less important. And again, this was a time where you had these news stories coming out of Google doesn't need to hire people with, uh, with degrees anymore. They're willing to hire anyone. And, and all of these kind of promises um, that uh, that we felt were, were going to be true, that in a few years, hey, degrees are just not going to matter. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the things that we've learned in the last few years is that uh, the, the change for society to, to go away from that as a credential um, will take longer, um, much longer than I think anyone who was at least in our industry expected. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I think um, if you are someone who uh, went to the types of schools that Jeremy and I did growing up, where you went to uh, high schools where most of your friends have uh, parents who have a really strong uh, network in, in Silicon Valley. So it's very easy for us to then get the types of jobs that we want. Uh, we had education at high school where we learned a lot of liberal arts uh, components. We learned uh, very in-depth computer science to get to a point where we're able to get internships right after high school. Um, that's an experience uh, where if you're going to one of these top prep schools, uh, yeah, maybe you can actually forego college and you'll be fine. Um, most of the country's not like that. Uh, and especially when it comes to students who are from low-income backgrounds or backgrounds that are underrepresented in tech. And they're already struggling to break into these industries because these industries, I mean, the, the, the cards are just stacked against them in, in so many ways. Um, and so for those students, 
to claim that they don't need a degree to succeed in life is like a really tough sell. Um, and it's may actually not be the right thing to be telling them. Um, because for, for most students, I mean, it's, it, as, especially as a young, young startup college, uh, you can't bet that the brand name of that, that college is going to be around for hundreds of years. Um, but you do know that a piece of paper will, will mean something. Um, and so for those demographics, it, we started to realize that it was much more important than we had initially thought. Um, maybe not for the students, but even for their families or their communities or, or whoever might, might be. Um, and uh, also on the employer side, uh, we found it uh, actually to be quite uh, slow to change, where you do have more companies today than, than there were a few years ago who are hiring students without a degree. Um, but they're doing so and still requiring people to have experience in some way, shape, or form of having an internship somewhere or uh, maybe having a lot of open source projects that they've uh, worked on and, and built. And so it's, it, it's, companies are willing to hire people without a degree, but the threshold and the bar is much higher than if they're hiring people with a degree. And companies hiring process are still filtering um, folks with, a, uh, with degrees. They're still looking at what schools do they go to. And uh, they're using that as a, a quick way to filter out resumes. Um, and even a place like Google, who was willing to hire one of our students um, without a degree, our students can't apply for their internship program. They can only apply for full-time jobs at Google because of, again, it's just kind of a baked-in HR process um, that nobody really has incentive to change um, because that's... It, it's just a hard system to change. So, um, yeah, those were some of the, some of the core reasons why we thought that, that becoming degree granting was, was critical. You touched on, uh, student debt, mm-hmm. uh, which from 2000, 2003, student debt was 240 billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2018, it was 1.4 trillion. Yeah. Um, and this is clearly something that was on your mind as you designed Make School. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the design decisions that you made? with student debt in mind? Yeah. Um, so the uh, we started using income share agreements or an early form of them back in 2014 when we launched this longer form program. Uh, the initial intent there uh, was we were just piloting this, this new thing and we wanted to figure out a way to offer students a value prop that they basically couldn't refuse. It was like so t- too good to be true almost. Um, and so the way we pitched it to them was they would study for six months, they would then intern for six months, and whatever they made during the internship, they would then pay back for their tuition. And at that time, we had a house in Palo Alto that we were going to put them up in as well. So it was like they basically pay nothing for the year, they get this great learning experience and this great great internship experience. Um, so that was kind of the early sort of sort of way that we thought about it. Um, and it, it, it was almost after we had been running that program for a couple of months where we really started to say like, hey, if education is an investment, if the education is actually going to get you a great outcome like we think it will, uh, why can't we be taking that risk instead of the students be taking that risk? Um, and I think one thing that people uh, maybe don't fully fully uh, get unless they're really in the weeds of, of, of ISAs and they kind of think about this a lot is I think uh, structurally student debt and income share agreements are not terribly different, right? You create some sort of obligation for a student, some sort of IOU that the student then once they're employed, they have to, they have to pay back later. Um, the essential difference in my view is that uh, with student debt, the risk is held by individual students that if the student graduates from a school and doesn't have a good job, they are still on the hook for paying. And what the ISA does, it then basically aggregates that debt and has what's what we call an insurance layer on, on top of some sort of IOU mechanism, right? Um, and we, we see like the, the way the world is moving in, in finance, not just in, in student debt, but in like healthcare, right? What do we do? We pay into an insurance policy a little bit so that if we go to the hospital and have like $10,000 of, of bills, we're not paying that out of pocket instead of the insurance company is paying it. And so with the insurance, like what insurance in general as a concept is, is let's aggregate risk from all these different people, make it 
more humane for people to be taking some sort of debt or some sort of risk um, because they won't be on the hook for everything. And this collection of people or this collection of individuals is then paying a little bit extra in order to cover that, uh, that, that, uh, base. I mean, so ISAs are basically similar where, um, the collection of students, your cohort will basically say, uh, we're going to be paying this much for the education. And we know that some of that money is then being parked aside for an insurance policy to make sure that no student is ever stuck with a really bad outcome and, and having, having a huge amount of debt. And so what happens? So if a student drops out in the middle of the program, what happens? Yeah, so if they drop, drop out in the middle, middle of the program, their ISA will be prorated. Um, let's say there's, there's a couple of reasons students leave mid-program. Sometimes they go go to get a job, in which case that's a great outcome. Then if they're making over $60,000 a year, they'll then pay back for their prorated amount. Um, if they leave and they don't have a job, then uh, the students uh, don't or basically are in deferment, so they don't have to pay back on, on the ISA. Um, and after a certain period of time, that deferment will basically expire their contract. So if they uh, there's a certain sort of number of months that that there's a grace period, and once that grace period ends, then they basically uh, no longer have obligation uh, for for that. And so uh, there's sort of a few scenarios that can happen. You can have students who leaves May school and gets a job Im- immediately, they pay back. That's kind of a, a normal performing student, right? You have a student who leaves, they uh, go study elsewhere for a year or they do something else. Um, they then continue to defer until they start making that money uh, or over 60K a year, and then they pay back. Um, or there's a student who leaves May school never gets employed or never starts making over 60K a year, and they never have to pay. And are the majority of students choosing that option? Because I know you off, you still offer both options, right? And then and the students choose whether they want to opt into the ISA. Yeah. Uh, 90% of students uh, take ISA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I saw that, that you do, which also reduces costs, is uh, the time that it takes mm-hmm. to go through the program. Can you talk a little bit about that? So we felt that uh, we wanted to provide a more accelerated degree uh, path for students um, for a few different reasons. I think one is uh, trying to normalize their work relationship with school um, towards what their work relationship will be after school. Um, I think one thing that I found challenging in college uh, was it didn't really act as a good like segue into the, the working world um, and felt a little bit more like you go to a few classes and you do some homework. And um, I think for a lot of students, uh, especially ones who are uh, who are really motivated, um, it, it, it often isn't uh, as challenging as, as we think it could be. Um, and I think challenging is maybe the wrong word because it's like, it's not about the classes being hard, um, but it's about being able to put effort towards something that you care about. And it turns out that if you do care about it and you're passionate about it, then things that seem really hard and seem like a lot of work become a lot easier. I mean, if you have the right support and the right training. And so um, when we thought about what the different courses and classes we wanted to teach were and what credits we would need eventually to get uh, to be degree granting, um, we felt we could fit them in a much shorter period of time. Um, now there's two really great output um, uh, outputs of that decision. Um, the first one is that uh, the, the cost of the degree is substantially lower, um, where students are paying uh, paying a couple of years um, instead of four years, uh, which is which is great. Uh, the second piece is they're in the workforce earlier, which means they can start earning earlier. Um, so the, the opportunity cost of being in the workforce or not being in the workforce for two more years. Um, so the total gain is actually quite uh, quite substantial. Um, and the, the second piece is that when you look at specifically low-income students who are entering college, um, and we're at a time where the like average or the, the uh, six-year graduation rate um, average for colleges is like hovering around 60% maybe, which means 40% of students who are enrolling in college are not graduating in six years. Um, and one of the things that, that is especially tough for low-income students is uh, the longer you stay in college, the less likely you are to graduate. 
because what happens is something happens to your family back home and you have to go and take care of them. They're, you're, let's say a parent gets hurt and they can't go to their job anymore. And now you suddenly have to start earning to provide supplemental income. Um, and so the longer time you have when you're in college, the more likely it is like just from a number of months is like over a six year period. Yeah. Someone's something's likely going to happen to someone near you um, where you're going to need to start earning um, versus if you do it in a shorter period of time, people can graduate early and they, they then can start earning and, and start sending money back to their family and, and so on and so forth. So I want to shift back to your partnership with Dominican yeah. University. Can, how did that come about and what does that partnership look like? Sure. Um, so the, the partnership came about, uh, when we started to think about what, uh, or how important accreditation was and, and for some of the reasons we discussed earlier. Um, it was, uh, we were very fortunate in terms of the timing of this, um, because WASC, which is the West Coast accreditor that accredits Stanford, Berkeley, uh, et cetera, um, and is Dominican's accreditor, uh, they, um, they, launched this new policy called the incubation policy. And the point of the incubation policy was to provide a faster path for new institutions that wanted to become a college to basically serve an apprenticeship under existing institutions. And um, so what that entails is the existing institution would provide oversight over the curriculum, would deal with all the federal data reporting, um, support with things like Title IX, with mental health, um, and all of the things that you need to do to be a, be a college at, at scale. Um, and what that does is it lets a smaller institution um, be able to learn learn about these things faster and have some support, have someone to lean on as they, they get spun up, right? Um, when you think about how traditionally colleges have started, uh, it's basically taken multiple tens of millions grants, like $50 million grant from someone. They spend a couple of years, anywhere between like two to five years in just building the infrastructure, hiring the people, and then before they are able to really uh, put, get students in the door. Um, and it's a really slow process and an expensive process to get get a new college up and running. And so um, this was a way to create a faster path to create more innovation. Um, it was modeled largely after the Minerva Project's partnership with KGI, um, where they again had this partner school, which was uh, sort of overseeing them. Um, and the intent of the, the incubation policy is also uh, to within three to five years for um, the, the kind of uh, incubating school to spin off as their own accredited entity. So it's really like a stepping stone towards accreditation and traditionally accreditation is seen as costing like $10 million and taking, taking 10 years to implement. Um, so this is now a three to five year process and, and much more um, cost effective to, to get that spun up. So um, it was really, really, again, good timing that that po uh, policy was in place. Um, I think it's also kind of interesting timing, like on the WASP side as well, um, where the new president there is a woman named Jamie Studley. Um, she came from the Obama administration where her and Ted Mitchell were pushing really strong uh, reform on higher ed uh, around focus on outcomes and really ensuring that that was, uh, that was a priority for schools, um, but found a lot of pushback both between from institutions as well as accreditors in the policies they were trying to push. And so she joined WASC as the, as the president after her term at the Obama administration. And so um, really, I, I think the, the right people uh, happened to fall into place on the accreditor, accreditor side. Um, we uh, talked to a few schools, met uh, met with Mary Marcy, who's the president of Dominican, um, and she's just phenomenal. I mean, she's so forward thinking, uh, has a really great understanding, both great vision for Dominican as an institution, um, really trying to push stronger innovation, uh, trying to push stronger into 21st century skills and trying to strike a better balance rather than this kind of false choice between liberal arts courses and, and a more career focused degree. It doesn't have to be either or, but, um, so she's been doing a lot of work in terms of getting her, um, 
her students at Dominican as well, um, really, really uh, supported in, in those areas. And so um, we we felt there was such strong alignment around what we felt made good education. So both the combination of liberal arts and, and career education, uh, really high touch support, a lot of emphasis on uh, low income and first generation college students. Um, and as a result, we we felt it was actually pretty easy to get through a lot of the, the pieces of the partnership. And um, not just because we, we sort of have these, these, uh, these kind of selfish aims, but it's more of, hey, we think we can build something together, which will be a good model, both for each of our institutions. We'll be able to, to share learnings um, within uh, or across our institutions, but then also uh, help others think about how they can be thinking about, uh, yeah, different different models for higher ed and different learning models, um, which we, which uh, there has been a lot of research recently to kind of uh, support uh, the, these kind of more progressive learning models. Um, and yeah, that, that was why we decided to work with Dominican. Were there any big changes that you had to make? Like you mentioned, you know, you already had a, a, a focus on liberal arts since you are already teaching courses, but were there any big changes that you had to make to make it work? Yeah, so we uh, we didn't have a formal liberal arts curriculum, but we had a lot of what we call character development and and soft skills, um, and so the liberal arts was uh, was one of the bigger changes. It was something we had intention of doing uh, anyways, and so it was kind of a nice forcing function. Um, and so currently, some of Dominican's faculty are coming down on Fridays to teach liberal arts courses uh, to our students, which is really uh, really great for uh, for them. Um, the other piece. Uh, we're uh, having to do a lot more uh, thorough uh, documentation around learning objectives uh, and around student data. Uh, when you think about like what it takes to scale an educational institution, uh, those are actually really critical things, right? Understanding what it, what is the goal of each and every one of your classes, and can you prove efficacy that students who are taking these classes are actually having those those outcomes met. Um, and so it's really helping us rethink, and, and obviously through our lens rather than the, the traditional lens, um, the, these questions that uh, that have been put in place by accreditors and, and by the federal government um, to ensure that that these systems can scale well and serve lots of students effectively. And so um, I would say that all of these changes that we've had to make are things that we find are, are wholly positive. I mean, it definitely in, in, introduces uh, steps that make us do more work and, and make us have to move uh, more slowly um, in certain certain areas, but actually that may not be a, a terrible thing um, when you have such such an important time in these students' lives uh, in your hands. And so um, there there were a lot of things that people consider uh, as sort of accreditor requirements, um, which aren't really the case. So things like having only PhDs teaching, um, that's actually not a requirement. You do, do you need well-credentialed um, staff and you need to prove that based on what you are teaching, the content of what you're teaching, the the instructors and the, the professors are have alignment with that. And so because we are a more career-focused program, our instructors coming from industry and having certain certain credentials there can work in lieu of having a PhD since that's less relevant since we're not a research institution. So and those are the kinds of things that like uh, when we first went into the accreditation process, we thought that it would be a lot harder and there would be a lot of other things we'd have to do. Um, but there, the reality is the, the accreditor um, and Dominican have both been uh, really willing to work with us and are really willing to, to kind of invest, um, cautiously invest and, and thoughtfully invest um, in, in what is a, really a, a very new model for, for higher ed. So you touched on that scalability, yeah. and you are your venture-backed company. So we are. You know, scaling is 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 obviously a priority, but you're also really committed to the social experience of mm-hmm. students and having that in person, at least in some form. So can you talk a little bit about what? What does scaling look like for Make School? Yeah, um, so it looks like uh, having more students. Um, one one stat that I think. Uh, is, is kind of surprising to hear is that uh, just in San Francisco alone, there are uh, about six colleges and universities with more than 5,000 students. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so to, to get to a point where you're at the scale of, uh, of any like mid-sized university, um, let alone large university, uh, that's actually quite a, quite a ways to go. Um, and, and really, and, and obviously from the venture side, that, that means it's a, like a sizable, sizable business. Um, but, uh, I, I don't look at, uh, in person as an impediment to scale. Um, I think the most important thing in our view of how to scale a great program is scaling, scaling great student outcomes. Um, and building a brand in the community based on those student outcomes. Um, and when you think about uh, what it is that makes really powerful education, in our view, um, having a strong community, having a strong peer group and strong instructors that you have face-to-face relationships with and very human relationships with uh, tend to be the thing that drives really, really strong quality outcomes. I think almost everything we do in the education is like scaffolding around, like, let's provide a strong community and let's provide students agency and uh, get them excited and passionate about their learning. Um, everything else is just like in service of getting out of their way and making sure that they're they're enabled. Like even the ISA, for example, is like they need to not worry about finances when they're there or our living stipends that we provide. In order for them to focus on learning, they need to be not worried about finances. So that's just a way of like us getting that out of the way. Um, things like mental health support, right? It's again, let's get, let's take whatever barriers that might hinder certain students and let's take those out of the way so the students can focus on let me be in this amazing community and learn to build the things that I want to be learning. And so um, when I think about scalability, like quality ultimately is most important. Um, and it's really hard to, to scale, at least from what we've seen um, through uh, through programs that are not in person right now. Um, maybe one day we'll have tech that, that simulates that experience. But uh, but but currently that that's our main focus is how, how to ma- ma- maintain really, really high quality. Um, and I think the other thing is is really understanding demographics as well. Um, where when you're looking at our demographics, which are students who are just coming out of high school or have done one year, one or two years of college and want to transfer in, um, they're largely looking to go to a place um, that has an in-person social learning component. There's only about 3% of 18 to 25-year-olds who are in undergraduate programs getting their degrees online. Uh, versus graduate school, it's like 25%. Um, so there, there is a strict difference in learner preferences. And so when we think about building it, building a, a kind of a larger organization, um, we, we really want to make sure that we are building a product that appeals to the core uh, of the demographic that we're targeting. And um, I don't think the the online sort of technology is a limiting factor for it only being 3%. Um, I think it's really because that's what the learners want. Um, and that's what ends up getting the best outcomes. So what types of outcomes are you getting? Um, like four years in, we've had a few cohorts mm-hmm. of students that have completed the programs. What are you seeing in terms of impact and outcomes? Yeah. Um, so we're starting to see uh, a broad spectrum of employers looking to hire from uh, from our program. We've had uh, any of the kind of top four tech companies, uh, we've had uh, students hired there. Um, the largest or most, most number of students work at uh, Facebook, uh, Google, um, Apple, and Yelp are the, the kind of top employers right now. Um, there's a lot of other kind of VC-funded companies um, that are also hiring out of the program. Uh, we recently had three students place at Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, um, which was really cool. And usually they're going for jobs that uh, the, the other folks who are in these kind of internship programs are usually coming out of Stanford, UC Berkeley, and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, yeah, there seems to be quite quite a, a large range of students or uh, companies that are interested in, in the program. Um, not not every student is getting uh, one of those top top quality outcomes or top sort, sort of big company outcomes. A lot of them are working at smaller startups, either because they want to or because that, that's what's uh, what's available to them. Um, generally, we're seeing about a 95k average salary um, for the students, um, which is uh, pr- pretty good, especially since a lot of the students are coming from uh, family backgrounds where their families are making less. 60k or 50k um, a year which is really exciting to kind of think about that that generational jump um, and yeah 
I'm curious, who is the typical make school student, if, it, if there is one? Like, who, you know, who's a student that is really excited about joining the program and, and, um, and why? Yeah, there's uh, kind of two criteria we use for admissions. So we don't look at SAT scores. We don't look at GPA. Um, and instead, we look at uh, aptitude for uh, computer science. So they must have some exposure to CS and tech. Maybe they've t- taken an online course at Code Academy or they've uh, taken a class in their high school. Um, but uh, because you can't transfer into being a different major when you're at make school, you, we have to know that you're ready um, and you're you're you want to have a career in tech. Um, the second piece is uh, we... Um, look for evidence of sustained work ethic. So uh, it's usually shown outside of school. So you could show that, hey, I got good grades and this proves that I can work hard. Um, but usually it's folks who have some project outside of it. They've built an app on their free time or they've uh, volunteered at some nonprofit for, for a long time or um, they've helped their, their friend start a small business. Um, there's all sorts of ways that they can evidence that they can commit to certain projects and work really hard on them. Um, and it's usually folks who, who have some sort of interest in uh, output or outcome, right? They're not going through the motions of doing school because they're told to, um, but rather they're they're choosing a project that they're really passionate about, that they care about the end result. Um, and and uh, because of that, we tend to get a lot of students who are interested in creating some sort of social impact. Um, we try to uh, appeal to a very diverse uh, uh, student body uh, or a student demographic. We have. Um, Currently, about 40% uh, percent of the students are uh, uh, underrepresented students of uh, color. Um, and only about uh, 25, uh, 26% are women. And that's a stat that we really want to improve over time and it has been improving uh, a little bit, but definitely some work work there. And so we would like to have demographics that look like the, the country and um, more look like that kind of young, uh, young age band of the country. Um, and a lot of the things that we do in terms of like not looking at ACC scores and GPAs as well as ISAs are definitely ways to try to make it more inclusive to, to, to more types of people who uh, want to use computer science as a tool to create very positive change in the world. So um, I, I read a blog post that you wrote, I think about a year ago, in which you did a really nice job segmenting the post-secondary market. And in the blog post, it, it was very clear that you're targeting the largest segment um, within that market, the, the traditional um, uh, bachelor's degree student. Um, why aren't more startups focused in that area? I think it's really hard. Um, I think you have to build a much more full stack solution for uh, those students where if you're, let's take boot camps as an example, um, a lot of the, the students who are in boot camps, I think it's something like 80% of them already have college degrees. So that means they've learned a lot around time management. They've learned a lot around how to deal with themselves and their emotions. Um, they've learned a lot about communication. Um, and there's less, both from the education side as well as the student support side. Um, when you're taking students who are 18, uh, 17, 18, 19, who are coming to the program, uh, there's a lot more support you have to give students who are living on their own for the first time. And uh, both in terms of understanding like how they can live on their own, how they can eat on their own, how they can uh, so support their own uh, their own uh, mental health. And um, I think those are uh, that, that's a pretty, pretty hard challenge. I think, again, these learners prefer um, a, a very concrete in-person environment, which means having some sort of dorms, having a building that they're coming into every day. Yeah, I think those are things that, that tend to be more challenging. Uh, needing, uh, like, in order to, to kind of penetrate more of the market, you really need uh, to be degree granting. And if, if that's the case, there's this entire accreditation uh, hurdle that, that you have to go through. And so um, I think there's a lot of value in people targeting different segments of the market as well. That's 
super needed, especially as we're starting to see automation take more and more careers. So um, I, I, in some ways, I feel that's kind of the harder uh, thing to do where you're taking students who are adults who have spent their entire world thinking in a certain mi- mindset and kind of shifting uh, shifting their mindset. Um, and at least from an ed- educational standpoint, uh, from the infrastructure standpoint, it's, it's a little harder to do what uh, what we're doing. Um, but what I think it does is it, it helps us fill the room with this community of like really uh, passionate, really motivated and energized uh, students who uh, which makes the, the learning part um, a little, little bit easier. So you mentioned a lot of barriers to entry. Yeah. Um, so, so what? How do you see the higher education space evolving? So one, there's a lot of models that are currently there from incumbents that are just not working well. Um, and the way we know they're not working well is that their finances are not doing great. So like there's like Moody's has done some research on like credit ratings of a lot of institutions and there's like a good 20% of them that have pretty bad credit ratings and like the, the rates at which they're borrowing is not going to hold up. Right. So there's a few different options of like what happens, right? Because you, you have 20 million college students, right? And then you have 20% of that of the colleges are kind of at risk, uh, which is Generally, even if you ask university presidents, they'll kind of agree with that, with that sentiment. Um, so of the, those 20% of the colleges that are at risk, uh, so then you, you're, you're talking about like millions of students who are, they, they need to be supported somehow. And so there's, there's a few things that, ha- that could happen, right? One is the institutions that are at risk start to be willing to take more, uh, chances in terms of how they're going to be shifting and be a little more radical with those shifts in order to continue to survive. Um, so that we've seen that uh, in other industries as well. Um, so that will probably happen to some degree. Um, I think that's, there's a lot of value in that option because then you don't kind of wrench out some of the existing systems and you don't leave a lot of students in the lurch. Um, and if these new systems can work well and there's, there's good inspiration for it. And I think we can definitely be one of the inspirations for it. I think that that could be a really, really great thing. Um, another thing that's happening is you're seeing consolidation of, uh, of universities where you're having universities kind of merge, especially that are in a certain lo- location. Um, one thing that happened in the last like 30, 40 years is, uh, every university tried to do everything. Um, so now you have these schools that are trying to have, 200 degrees, um, when, uh, when they probably should focus on the ones that they're doing really well. And so one of the things that consolidation, especially geographic consolidation enables is if you have like one small, small town or a small area, which has like three colleges nearby, if you do consolidate them, you can kind of have one end up being the college of engineering or one being the college of liberal arts and and one being the college of something else. And I think that kind of thing can drive a lot of efficiencies and and help a lot of the the challenges that, that, uh, uh, folks are having. And, uh, I think that that works better psychologically for the boards and, and the kind of leadership of these organizations uh, because they feel like we're still serving students through that um, if they have sort of a partner or a um, a sort of separate college that's that's kind of attached um, and, and is still serving them. Um, and then I think there will be some new uh, new entrants as well. Um, I would hope so. The, the accreditation process we went through, there's still a lot of external dependence on it in the sense that like we had to be around for a while to have enough data and evidence to show that this was a good enough program to get accredited. We also had to have Dominican as a partner and without Dominican, this whole thing would have fallen apart. And so, um, finding other schools that are as progressive thinking, um, and are doing it for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. Right. Um, if there was a school, for example, that was like failing and then they're trying to do some sort of partnership to, to save themselves, like that's a bit more of a, of a question mark. And in, in Dominican's case, they're growing, their enrollment is growing. Um, and they're, they're kind of on an upward trajectory. And so for them, this was more values alignment. It wasn't like, Hey, we're, we're struggling. We got to figure, figure this out. And so, um, so I, I think hopefully there are more schools who, even if they're doing well, are willing to, to think about these, these other kinds of things. Um, but, 
and the other thing that I think will happen on like a 10, 20 year time frame um, is uh, rethinking accreditation standards um, with more emphasis on outcomes. Um, and if there is some new path or new accreditor that's focused, that's like the kind of outcomes focused accreditor, um, that could be another way that new, new entrants um, enter that, that segment of the market as well. So my final question, um, we have a lot of listeners who are just starting out in ed tech or starting mm-hmm. new education ventures or thinking about starting ed- education ventures. Um, what advice would you give them? What advice do you wish you had four years ago? Hmm. Um, one thing that I've learned about education, which is really tough, is it takes decades to change consumer behavior. And when you compare markets like China, for example, where there's a huge amount of consumer spend on supplementary education services, uh, they there are these like amazing companies being born and like test prep and, and after school programs and so on and so forth. Uh, versus in the U.S., there's like this really weird curve of consumer spending on education where basically early childhood education, there's a huge amount of spending. And then like somewhere around like third grade, it drops off to like almost nothing outside of many private schools. And then in around t- late 10th grade and, and 11th grade, it kind of spikes up again for SAT testing and, and all these other, uh, other, other pieces. Um, and then there's like once you graduate from college, people just don't spend money on education anymore. So it's like a kind of this weird, like we, the, the way the U.S. thinks about education is like, get it when you're really young, get it when you're in college, and then that's it. Um, and that is, although that is the wrong model, it's unclear that that will change anytime soon. Um, because again, it's a lot about the, the cultural baggage, which takes decades to do. And so um, I would say there, there are kind of three areas that are uh, the most interesting um, to, to kind of target. One is early childhood education, especially increasing accessibility for that to students of, of uh, uh, who don't have access to paying $30,000 a year for a preschool um, or, or private schools, especially in, in areas like New York and San Francisco. Um, so that's a very interesting one. Uh, what are ways that we can have more in-home learning tools for, for our students? Um, there seems to be enough sort of consumer spend there to actually properly up uh, good companies. Um, college is another kind of big one, right? Um, there's a lot of emphasis on alternative education programs for coding and for computer science, but that's a small fraction, even in the Bay Area, that's like 10% of jobs or something like that. Um, and so there's a huge other industries where um, this type of education, these types of innovation um, will, will be important. Um, and the third area is uh, that I'm uh, also excited about is corporate learning. Um, I have a vision that at some point we should have an in- education insurance, similar to you have a health insurance where um, every company will be paying $300 a month for, for each of their students to be uh, to be learning something. Um, either they can get a huge discount on courses that are rel- directly relevant to their job or a smaller discount for courses that are not. Um, and I think that uh, shifting the burden of payment from the consumers to to employers, um, especially in such a competitive uh, competitive landscape where employers need to attract really great talent and retain and, and develop really great talent, um, I think that's another interesting opportunity. So those are kind of the three, the three areas where um, I would probably look to focus. Ashi, thank you so much. I could I could talk to you all day about this stuff. Um, this was awesome, um, and yeah, thank you and congratulations on all of this, all of the success that you've had with Make School and the impact that you're having on students and how you're pushing the the broader sector. Thanks for having me. Thanks.